Welcome back uh, to the Zero Conference at Storo Oslo. Lots of people around, uh, enormous positive energy, uh, great success so far. Uh, and I have two good guests with me today. Uh, that's um, uh, Sigrun Gjerdøv Åsland, who's the director, pretty recent so director uh, of Zero. Uh, and it's Glenn Peters, who's the director of research of CISRO. Uh, and we are here to discuss some of the main topics of the conference, which is basically how to get to zero. Mm. And one subtopic is whether negative emissions can play a part in that. But let me start with the big picture uh, of the conference. Uh, Prime Minister Jonas Gahr Sigrun spoke about how Norway should focus on areas where what we do may have global impact, not about the... Uh, minor details on Norwegian politics, but how we can potentially impact on green hydrogen, on offshore floating wind, uh, and all the other technologies which the, uh, the world really do need. Mm. Uh, if I can ask you, what, what's your main take from the conference so far, and how, how do you see uh, the main avenues for Norway to really have global impact in, uh, in our policies? Well, I think, at least from my part, there are three main messages in this conference. And the one is that it's urgent. The urgency of it now is that we have nine years to cut emissions by 55%. The second is that there's a certain technology optimism out there, but um, there is a lot that hasn't been really scaled or released or used. So there's a lot of untapped potential, really. Uh, and then the third thing that the Prime Minister also spoke about, but I think we have a little bit different takes on it, is the whole question of just transition. What does it mean? Does it mean that we can wait and that we can do less and that we have to see what people are willing to accept? Or does it mean that we have to actually lead the way and, and make sure that we have people's backs in the green transition? And I think it's the latter. I think the green transition and a fair transition is one of the biggest issues of the global climate debate, because mm -hmm. unless we can... Uh, really solve that issue, you will have a lot of, lot of uh, hitbacks yeah. or hiccups. I mean, just as an example, I mean, if you are a coal miner in Kentucky, the US, or in the Shanxi province of China, uh, you may not be happy, even if it's an enormous benefit creating millions of jobs in America and China, but you think that the new jobs will come in the wind industry of Guangdong in China or in the solar industry of California, it's not for you, it's for someone else. Yeah. And of course, some people in the oil and gas industry know may also think the same. Yes, there will be many, many new and more exciting and well-paid jobs, but not for me. Mm. How, how can we overcome this? Well, I, that was also one of the big hurdles in Glasgow, that the poor countries came and they had been promised in Paris that the richer countries would fund them with $100 billion, which had not been forthcoming. And so they were coming into the negotiations pretty... Um, pessimistic and and, and, uh, and disappointed really I think you're right that there is no we have to do the cuts at home uh, we have to I think we're done with the whole discussion about can we pay for emission reductions elsewhere we all have to do it here in Norway um, but we're not there until everyone's there so that means number one Norway has to do more because some other countries will need more time India now says 2070 China says 2060 uh, which means that if the world is going to be emission-free in 2050, Norway needs to do a lot more. And then second, climate finance, I think, is a key, needs to be scaled up dramatically. And, and Norway has not delivered and no countries have actually 
delivered yet. And if you are to replace coal with renewable energy in India and in Vietnam and in all the transitioning and developing economies, it's a huge amount of investment that's needed. And the governments need to alleviate the risk involved in that and they need to build institutions and then we need to scale up the climate funding of those countries. And if, if you watch Norway from outer space or from that matter mm. from China or India, you may see a nation of hypocrisy. Uh, fantastic, progressive nation, the highest number of electric cars anywhere in the world per capita, have le- has led the world on rainforest uh, conservation and in a number of other areas. We have the highest number of electric ferries also anywhere in the world. Mm. On the other hand, uh, leading politicians in Norway claim that you need to even increase oil production to get the money to fund uh, the green transformation. You think that's an argument which an easy sell outside our own borders? No, I don't think it is. I also think it's not such a good idea for the transition in Norway because what we're doing now is we have this very generous tax package for uh, exploring oil and gas, which also means that people who could be working in developing and exploring offshore wind opportunities and, and driving the green shift are busy because they're looking still looking for oil. Um, and Norway has gl- national emissions of about 50 million t- tons per year. If you count in the emissions that result from Norwegian drilling uh, and, and the actual um, use of that oil and gas elsewhere, it's tenfold, so mm. 500 billion um, million tons, really. So it's a paradox, and the prime minister spoke about it, of course, today also, and he admits that it's a paradox, and, and in his view, that's a paradox that the whole world is in. So we have been a fossil economy. We need to become a green economy. Um, but I think it's a bit... It's a bit odd how we talk about building up the oil industry in Norway when we're at this point in time where it's so urgent that we cut emissions. Uh, and it's also strange because we all know that the oil um, and gas exploration in Norway is its not an industry that is growing. It's an industry that is sort of a, a sunset industry, we often call it. So um, it's a paradox and it's true that it's a global paradox. Um, but I think also in the interest of speeding up the green shift in Norway, uh, we need to do less of generous tax subsidies to the oil sector and, um, and we need to do more to um, develop the technology that we need for offshore wind and for other things that are driving actual emissions down and, and building jobs also in the green economy. Glenn Peters, you are research director at CISRO. You also have the double benefit of being Australian, so you can see Norway from outside. While you have spent quite some time in this country, so you also understand Norway from the from the inside. How do you how do you see uh, Norway's contribution to the green shift, which is needed on the, on a global scale? What what should we do? Where should we prioritize? Uh, it's sort of a little bit ironic, Australia and Norway. Uh so similar in many respects so australia big coal exporter also resources iron ore and and so on and you know there's much of the same discussion in norway Mm. and australia sort of in a sense there's two stories politicians have to tell there's the story they have to tell to the oil the people working in the oil sector or people working in the coal sector and there's the story they have to tell to the people uh working in the cities and not so attached to the oil sector or the coal sector and and so on. So this is a a big challenge 
by listening to you two discuss, it's I, I think it's a it's a bit of a chicken and egg sort of issue. So if you're a, a coal miner out in the country in Australia, you know Australia, the sunniest continent, the windiest continent, all these things, you know, it should just be blessed with opportunities. But do those opportunities need to come first? So do you need those wind and solar projects in Australia taking away the workers, you know, competing for the workers and taking the workers away from the coal coal mines as opposed to doing it too soon, taking taking them away before the jobs are there? So I think this is a, a big conflict. And uh, in terms of solutions, I think it's really important to get the necessary solutions out into those regions where those people are employed and, and living, whether it's wind, solar, also hydrogen. We um, mentioned before we started, uh, there's a lot of hydrogen initiatives in Australia, also in, in Norway. Um, rolling things out, getting things happening. So you start competing for those workers and they actually benefit, they see the benefit physically. For Focusing one second on Australia, even if it's no, not our main topic, it seems to be kind of the same paradoxical nation like Norway on one hand you have now fantastic development on solar energy in just southern Australia I think set a world record they were even negative on the net because there was such an abundance of solar energy coming in, into the net while at the same time the Prime Minister is kind of clinging to coal in the same way as some Norwegian politicians are clinging to oil and gas so that you think you have the same arguments but don't you yeah. that oh, we have the cleanest exactly. coal yeah. in the world just yeah, like we we're have the cleanest we have coal the cleanest yeah. our coal is much better than everyone else's coal yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's the same yeah it's the same arguments the same contradictions trying to speak to that audience in in the coal sector because there's votes there um and coming to zero actually australia has been very strong on the net part of net zero So Australia was very late to become net zero or to pledge net zero in, in 2050. I only did it just before Glasgow conference a few weeks ago. Um, but there's a lot of emphasis on net and the net part. Uh, and so there's two aspects to that. One aspect is um, we're going to keep exporting oil, uh, sorry, coal and iron ore and, and so on. And the other aspect is we're going to offset those continued emissions with soil carbon. And so this is speaking to the farmers now. So soil carbon is one way of removing carbon, but it's quite contentious. The data is very hard to, to verify whether there's carbon actually being taken up. Um, and this is where a lot of the focus is in Australia. Um, but it also speaks to those voting communities, also those coal mining communities. Farmers and coal miners are often co-located. Let, let's zoom in uh, upon an area of your specific competence. I mean, because what Sigrun said is it, it's urgent. We need to act today, not not in a distant future. On the other hand, we also see this kind of double talk or cross-purpose uh, orientation of two great nations like Australia and Norway. We, we are moving ahead, but we're clinging to the, the old exactly at the same time. But is an opportunity for new scientific science uh, Uh, new technologies I mean to absorb carbon from the air uh, to uh, to get into a real uh, negative I mean I see a number of experiments in this area but you, you see this as a real I mean a real uh, science fiction opportunity to fix the problem yeah I think the important thing to emphasize with carbon dioxide removal it's a part of the solution and I think in recent years it's become a much more sexy part of the solution 
um, in the sense of direct air capture in particular, uh, which sounds like in, in you know a, a shiny new technology that's going to solve all the problems. Um, but the first thing to really emphasize is even if we have carbon dioxide removal at scale, it works better than anyone ever dreamed of, you still need to reduce carbon dioxide emissions radically. So the emissions still need to go down and that part of the message is, is lost. Uh, so there's still a lot of hard work to do on reducing coal, oil and, and gas. And the carbon dioxide removal, it's really there for the sectors that we can't otherwise mitigate. So start thinking now steel or cement or aviation um, or different forms of long distance transport. Those sectors which are really hard to decarbonize are the reasons that we need some carbon dioxide removal. But now we're only talking, let's say, 10% or maybe 20% of global emissions. 80%, the remaining 80% or 90% have to go down to, to zero. So that's a key point. So in short, this is one track, but not the main track, in, yes. in your view. I think we need to see yeah. it as a necessary but last resort. So mm. what we showed today is the goal of the Norwegian government is to get to 23 million tonne by 2030. And that's possible if we do every single uh, climate policy on the table. So you can't choose anymore. You, you have to do all of it. And on top of doing all of it, you have to do a little bit more. And on top of that, you need to have negative emissions. So you can't use it as a sort of excuse to delay other measures that you need to take. One one technology which has been a lot discussed here, but where I see some, some difference between the Norwegian debate and the global debate, that's carbon capture and storage and so-called blue hydrogen. Because... I spend a lot of time in China and India, and I see hardly any references to this in the Chinese or the Indian debate, but not even in the EU uh, or Germany. Uh, to the country, quite a lot of people are negative and see this just as a way of pro- for the oil and gas industry to prolong to, uh, the problem and not really answer it. Mm. So please, ha- your view, view on this. I mean, second first. And then. Well, I think if you read the IAEA, the, the last analysis that they presented before the summer, they say that, in a net zero scenario, there are no new exploration of oil and gas. Um, and then, of course, you have all sorts of different scenarios and many actors that want to see gas as an important part of that future scenario. And that would require a lot more carbon capture uh, than I think we realistically have plans for at this moment. Um, Hydrogen is going to be important. It's going to be important in shipping, in industry. And it's, impor- it's an important part of decarbonizing industry and shipping. Uh, and doing it green requires a lot of energy. Um, so it's easy to say that we need more blue hydrogen. Um, but I think um, in a net zero society and in all those measures that we need to take it's difficult to see how gas can have such a big role that that some of the gas providers would like us to think at least yeah so carbon capture and storage and actually hydrogen adding that on is sort of a i guess a luxury debate that we can have in rich countries Mm. particularly countries like norway and australia it's also seen as a way of continuing their industries um you know carbon capture and storage so we can keep doing you know our gas production and bury the co2 from um such as in sleipner in norway or gorgon in in australia or using gas to produce hydrogen or or whatever but now let's transition to china or india as an example so china has the biggest coal fleet in the world it's a very young coal fleet i think the average age of a coal power plant in in china is 10 or 15 years and if china wants to get to net zero in 2060 
as they've pledged, you probably can't run all that coal fleet out to its end of life. And so now we're starting to talk then about questions of retrofitting and the IEAs, some of their scenarios, uh, have a lot of retrofits of existing coal power facilities to provide the electricity that China needs, but also trying to reduce those emissions. So in terms of, you know, in quote, the need for carbon capture and storage, it's probably most acute in the developing world. Um, and it's more of a luxury. It's still sort of needed in a sense in, in the developed world, in the rich countries, but it's sort of more of a, a luxury because, you know, coal power plants in, in, the, in Europe and in the US, for example, are very old, being retired anyway. Um, solar and wind can re replace that because energy consumption is not growing radically. You have a bit of a problem with steel and, and so on. Um, but, you know, this is, we're starting to get to the last of the reductions, whereas in China and so on, you're really at the start of where you need the reductions to happen and you probably can't meet the ambitious goals without some level of carbon capture and storage. To <coughs> come to a close um, with the same issue where, where we started, which is the relationship between Norway and the rest of the world. I mean, in Glasgow, there was a certain number of finger pointing, particularly towards India. I have to say, personally, I found it very offensive. Uh, Indian emissions per capita historically is about 115 of the Norwegians, 125 of the Americans. And still this year, uh, per capita emissions are much, much higher uh, in Norway and even much, much, much higher in the United States than in India. Uh, you think there is any acceptance in India for the, them being finger-pointed to by us? No, <laughs> I don't think so. And I think we need... If we are to get the bigger emitters and those big transitioning economies on board in this, uh, we need to think very differently about dividing the costs and about who is cutting what and, and who's funding it. Yeah, I think that it was very unfair to point out India. So sure, India was the one that in the plenary said the words about changing the text um, related to phase out, phase down of coal. But I guess... To me, the most striking thing, it didn't say phase out or phase down of oil and gas. Mm. And it's oil and gas, which is the problem in the rich world. Mm. Um, and when you look at scenarios, cost-effective scenarios, they do show you know steeper reductions in, in coal compared to oil and gas. But these scenarios aren't considering any equity at all. And if you put a, even a little bit of equity in there, you'll find slightly slower reductions in coal, in um, <laughs> in the poor parts of the world, let's say India, and faster reductions of oil and gas in the rich parts of the world. You know, getting off our addiction in oil in the transport sector, which Norway's doing a little bit on, but you know, that's far more important, I think, than um, pointing fingers at, at India for changing from phase out to phase down of unabated coal. Yeah. And to end on an optimistic note, uh, India promised the Modi, promised in Glasgow that India should source half of its energy by 2030 from renewables, which is a remarkable and also concrete uh, pledge which, you, which can be measured. And India now is going big into solar. And just a month back, Prime Minister Modi launched a uh, green hydrogen mission for India. And in that meeting or the week after, the two biggest industrialists in India put 30 billion American dollars, close to 300 billion Amer Norwegian kroner, on the table for green hydrogen in India. So maybe we should, as an end, um, compare notes with Indians and others, see what we can learn from them, what they can learn from us, and reach out in, in, in a true global partnership where everyone needs to play their part.
But thank you so much. It's been a great conference and very inspiring. And I think it's really what it's really inspired us to do is to look into how government, politics and science and citizens and particularly business can do together. Thank you, Sigrun. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks Glenn for Peters. having me. Thank you. Great speaking.